Welcome to another episode of Talking Force. This is Thomas Newman, and we're in the lab today with some very special guests. Uh, I'm really looking forward to see uh, your response to this because, again, uh, if it is what I think it will be, um, you're going to be excited and not only be able to take away some of the information uh, that our guests are going to talk about into your daily practice, but may also change the way you think about handling problems or finding solutions because these two individuals, I've had the pleasure of working with them um, for several years uh, while at Yale University. And not only were we able to make some incredible um, inventions, some incredible insights, we were able to create an awesome experience, not only for the students, the student athletes, but then actually get real world success. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Dr. Larry Willen and Dean Vince from Yale University. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Thomas, just great to see you. Great to be here and happy to share the stories of the CID, Yale, Yale Athletics uh, with, with your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for uh, inviting us on. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Well, guys, I, I mean, let's, let's put it this way. When I first got to Yale, I didn't know kind of A, that Yale had engineering, B, that there's a CEID thing. Could you just kind of update for people, kind of give them an overview, not only of kind of what your departments are, what your roles are, um, but specifically kind of how it's different uh, than most places and how the CEID fits within the Yale community? So I'll jump in and give a little bit of history on Yale and engineering, and then Larry can talk a little bit about the CEID. So I find it interesting that you, you know, first thought of Yale and didn't know of engineering, because likewise myself wasn't uh, aware that Yale had an engineering program really until a few years I, before I came to campus. The history of Yale engineering though is very deep in that it started in 1852. And it was actually one of the largest programs at Yale during World War II. And during that period, 1852 to now, um, I like to think that we've uh, had our ups and downs and we're clearly, clearly, clearly on an upward trajectory. And when I say upward trajectory, we've got more students than ever. We've got more research than ever. We have more facilities than ever. And included in that list of facilities is the Center for Engineering Innovation and Design. So this is a site where all of Yale comes together. The engineers are there. The English majors are there. The art students are there. The athletes are there. And to learn about what we do at the CEID, Larry can give some insights into the workings of the Center for Engineering Innovation and Design. Yeah, thanks, Vince. Um, so we, we commonly refer to the CEID as sort of an academic makerspace. So it's a space where students from across the university can come in and work on projects in a hands-on way um, in a number of contexts, and, and I'll, I'll say in a second why I think the Yale experience is a little bit different from some others around, but the, the, they, can, they can work in here in sort of more informal contexts where they may just come in to work on a project, uh, an individual project that they're thinking about, um, and that ranges all the way to a more formal context where they're in the space as part of a, a, a class. Um, uh, and then in between, there are things like workshops that we hold um, or various clubs that use the space for their more organized activities um, of designing and, and, and making um, things uh, using, using the tools that we have. So to mention some of the tools that we have in the space, uh, we have the tools like laser cutters, 3D printers, 
um, computer stations, electronic stations, um, so many uh, wood shop and 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 metal shops. Um, so many of the tools that you find in these in these maker spaces um, are we find in our space. Um, but then just to say one or two things about I think where we're a little bit different is on the formal side where we have courses in here uh, and this is the area in which Thomas has sort of worked with us on um, by having courses that introduce the students very sort of deliberately to uh, the technology and the tools as well as the sort of theory behind various engineering disciplines um, this provides sort of an entree for these students who are usually first-year students to really directly jump right in and become involved in, in, in many engineering disciplines in a, in a more hands-on way than they would normally experience in some of their other theoretical courses. And what this has done for us is, is it's led directly into a lot of projects and outcomes um, in some in the area that Thomas is familiar with uh, that have been extremely successful um, and and we've just found that this way of working with students through classes in the makerspace is, is, is a great experience. I mean it's hard for people to really kind of understand how this might all come together but what I'll tell you is it's nothing short than magical. When you walk into a space where there's just an energy, there's a vibe and there's a can-do attitude and if we don't have an answer you know you'd reach out and I, and I think you know we had so many different things over the years different um, innovations, different tools, and not just, you know, concepts. Some of these things were actually like put to market, put to actual use for the specific purpose of say athlete safety. Um, and then, you know, competitive advantage and really gaining clarity into areas that had never been looked at before. And so being at that tip of the spear of innovation, you know, we accomplished a lot. What were some of your, you know, if you go back through time, because there's so many of them, if you had to pick one or two of some of your, your favorite uh, projects that we worked on, what would they be on, on your end? Larry, go ahead, go ahead first, and then I'll add mine after you uh, share your soul. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention the, the reaction time device, uh, which was one of the first things that we collaborated on. Um, this was a device that was inspired by the need of the lacrosse team to um, find a way to incre increase or decrease actually the reaction time of players for particular scenarios like whether they were defending against goal or shooting on goal. Um, uh, knowing that in the actual real game or real practice situation there was sort of a limit to how much time you could practice shooting at a goalie. Um, so, you know, the goalie could only practice that for a certain amount of time and, and retain their focus. So we found a different way of, of looking at reaction time, you know, again with Thomas's help, which was a board that uh, students had to react to various lighting and colors um, and push buttons in response to those. Um, and, and we developed that in a way that was super flexible and allowed different kind of games to be programmed and, 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 and in fact we had one that was more for the lacrosse team um, and the other one that was more for the football team uh, and, and there was sort of a different way of going about it based on what the different players needed. So that was one of my favorites and it was super successful. Uh, the students apparently loved to use it and it, and it helped them. Yeah, and, and as, uh, as you're explaining that, I'm getting flashbacks and thinking about when that first came out, 
very similar. There's some commercial products out there that were kind of similar um, in what the, the mechanism was as far as a light board. Um, but what was so interesting is not only were we able to take that physical concept, it was able to actually build the software to be able to measure what we wanted to measure, be able to turn it into a game to the point where it became addicting. And I remember hearing the slapping sound of pop, 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 pop. And so teams would come in, athletes, and that thing would go up for six, seven, eight hours a day. Not only were this used as a training tool, it was competitive, it was funny, especially when the interns did it. But I think maybe what kind of gets overlooked is that, you know, one of the things when we built that board was what kind of buttons do you put in? And I had, that was one of my first times of seeing like, there are so many buttons, big buttons, little buttons, square buttons, round buttons, buttons with a flat top, buttons with an arch. And how much time and intricacy that program went through from the initial kind of demo concept, if you will, and then kind of going all the way through to the final product. The other thing I want to point out on that, because I can say this now, is, is that when you start to be able to understand the upper limit of human reaction, you're able to bridge that gap now into a tactical advantage. So in the sport of lacrosse, we knew exactly how fast the fastest person ever was, either as an outlier or on average, and then design an entire offense concept around it and figuring out, well, if I shoot hundred miles an hour and to your point, Larry, you know, talking about taking too much rubber. I mean, if you get pelted with a lacrosse ball at hundred miles an hour, there's only so many of those shots and you don't have limitless goalies. And uh, particularly our defense was pretty good um, in games. How did you handle when a goalie might go five minutes doing nothing? The ball's at the other end of the field. And then they have to be able to turn their brain on and figure out how to think and process. So something simple as a light board, we were able to manipulate that, use that, and then develop it custom just so, you know, we could have that competitive advantage. And then, you know, again, the story speaks for itself, um, had that great write-up, but, you know, to be able to win a national championship and then on the football side, finding out some people are tractors, some people are reactors. And we would set it at, you know, how quickly can you whack them all? Okay. Only whack the green moles or only whack the blue moles. And you saw that there was definitely a different cognitive um, approach uh, that people had towards the boards. And some people just couldn't react. But that being said, if they knew where they went, um, that could be, um, they could use their skills. And so we saw that by transitioning individuals, either from offense to defense, or sometimes more, more likely the defensive people, if they just didn't have the reaction, put them over on offense. And suddenly now you increase productivity. And again, that also speaks for itself in the fact that, you know, one, you know, two out of three Ivies and, and shattered nearly every individual record. But those are the stories that I think go untold. And it was your care. And it was the students who were on that project really put in some incredible time and effort to really think about what is the core problem and how do I create a solution? So again, something like that. And it's still still alive today, still in the weight room. Um, and that's just, again, one of those secrets that people don't know about. But thank you for sharing that. Dean Vince, what's your favorite? What was yours? Yeah, I want to follow up on that story with uh, access, actually, to the story. So you know, we're going to be telling some tales here. We're going to be sharing some information. But if members of your podcast want to learn more, if they just type in these simple words, Yale, engineering, and then put in the sport of your choice. In this case, it could be lacrosse. There's a couple stories that'll uh, pop up. It could be Yale engineering football. There'll be a story or two pop up and it'll have the images and maybe some additional information. So uh, Coach Newman asks, uh, what's your favorite one? And it makes me think about children. And someone says, well, what, who's your favorite child? I was like, no, got to love them all equally here, coach. So we're going to stick with lacrosse since we started off with lacrosse. We did a great, great project with Coach Shea. And the scenario is training for lacrosse. You want to uh, be ready, hit the field, have your stick moving as fast as possible. But how do you do that inside New England in the winter? 
And so the idea was to take a standard lacrosse stick. Coach Newman had some fins on it to add a little bit of resistance. But rather than seeing how fast the ball goes, we want to see how fast that stick moves. So cleverly embedding in the stick, on the stick, an accelerometer, and then wirelessly monitoring the speed of that stick. And on a display, you've now gamified this just like you've gamified the light board so that players could take the device, put it on their stick, and go ahead and take a couple shots and get instantaneous feedback. Set a threshold. If you're below the threshold, you start to hear a you know, disgruntled lacrosse team behind you uh, offering their encouragement. And then if you get above the threshold, the screen turns green and Coach Neiman uh, takes sort of like the victory sound of the Yale lacrosse team, you know, a dude that popped up in there. So uh, the story here is actually getting the athletes um, from a particular sport, mixing them in with the students, which could include student athletes, student engineers on these development teams. And in a very, very short period of time, having the coach come in say what the coach is looking for, and then the engineer takes off. Uh, they look at the model. They look at a suite of sensors. They look at how do you mount this? How do you reliably transmit this signal through the air? And then how do you make it human? How do you, how do you engage the user? And one of the greatest, greatest things about this and, and most of the devices is then uh, coach drags us into the gym before, and so the students meet the players, they, 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 they learn about the challenge, but then we go into the gym after. And after is when the team is there and they're using the device and all of a sudden the engineers are like part of the team, right? Because the unit that they've developed is now an active, active, active training program. Um, so it's just really engaging. The amazing thing is that this all happens within the course in a period of six weeks. So, I mean, you have to be as efficient off the field as the athletes are on the field to be successful in this product development and uh, incorporation program that we, we, we put together within the Center for Engineering Innovation and Design. So, Coach, that's my current favorite in lacrosse here. Well, and I think that, you know, you bring up a great point there um, about the gamification and then using it. And then I think what also when we would get things right, and, and I don't think there's ever a wrong. I think anytime in innovation, there's never a wrong because you're, you're trying to push that outer boundary. It's when you can create a language. So we're speaking English, but if we all started speaking Mandarin, I don't, I don't know, maybe you guys know it. I don't. But if we spoke the same conversation in Mandarin, we wouldn't have any meaning or context. It was very interesting to see on that stick, on the lacrosse stick how the coaches were able to go and look at that and understand that, okay, I have two individuals. They both jump 30 inches. Say they have 7,500 Watts um, for power production. Well, it's an open chain system. So if I know you can put that into the ground and then I can read out at the end of the stick. And so we think about, and anybody who doesn't know lacrosse, it's similar to baseball or tennis or uh, uh, swinging a bat where you have this massive rotational force. Well, as soon as you start changing the vectors from up and down, because that's the only way gravity goes, and now you have to put it into a whip. It could be that you lose power in your ankles. It could be that you're losing power. So we think about this open chain kind of leakage. And so it was interesting to see, hey, this person doesn't need to get stronger. They need to spend more time shooting. Conversely, you would find someone who's very, very efficient, 
they're just not that strong. They're just not that powerful. And so we need to reinvest kind of back on the weight room side of things. And so that was a massive, massive tool to be able to go in, see that and know that if you can get to 7,500 watts, 8,000 watts, that should result in a, you know, shot speed of blank. If you get to that, that means you, the ball will get to the net at blank amount of time. And so you can plan the offense around that. And that wasn't the only time we looked at systems. It reminded me too, when we worked on the, uh, the smart boat, so if somebody can jump a little bit into that, because from an open chain system where you could have leakage um, from, you know, being grounded to kind of not the boats, our crew teams are incredible here. We had with the, uh, the women's team, a really interesting uh, design uh, product that came out that, uh, that focused on the closed system. Could you guys talk about that a little bit? Um, sure. Since I have the advantage of being able to look over the desk and, and seeing it, if I forget something, uh, because we're, you know, it's still under development in some sense. Um, what we decided or what the students decided to do here, and I think it's important to, to say that these challenges are brought to the students from, you know, various people, whether they be a coach or, 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 or other people for other kinds of projects. Um, and they're usually presented with a somewhat open-ended challenge, not, you know, build this specific little device, but sort of how do we improve the performance or how can we increase the speed of, et cetera. Um, and then the students get to sort of figure out what, you know, they dig deeper and, 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 and sort of get more and more specific about what they think will solve that challenge. So in this case, as Thomas mentioned, there was sort of this idea in the crew boat of the transfer of power and whether you're efficiently transferring the power, let's say, in your arms and your legs to the motion of the boat itself and, and make sure there's no leakage of that power into things that are not really moving the boat. Um, so the students took an approach where they developed uh, uh, something that could measure the, the, um, the forces that the feet were exerting on the boat as well as the forces that the arms were exerting on the oars. And by measuring both of these and looking not just at the values, but also the timing of when these forces were applied um, to understand sort of whether the feet were then correctly transferring the power to the oars. Also, by the way, they could measure, I believe, the angle of the oars to make sure it was moving through the water in the correct direction and not wasting effort in that way. Um, they came up with this very unique device that, again, they're, they're sort of a commercial versions of these devices, but because the students were interacting directly with the coaches and with team members, they could sort of fine tune it to this very specific question and start to answer, you know, the question that, that, that was presented or the challenge presented of whether the power was efficiently being transferred. Um, and they also, by doing an, sort of their own device, could do it much more, um, I would say, uh, you know, uh, they could build it cheaply in, in compared to some of the commercial devices, which can cost thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, I thought that was very insightful. Again, looking at, do we need to make this person stronger? Do we need to, is this person as strong as they can be? And they're very efficient. Being able to actually have clarity not only helps the athlete, it also helps the coach. And, and I think also to for athletic training as well. If someone has to redline it all the time, to keep up with their peers. I mean, that, that, that's incredibly valuable information and just something that hadn't existed. And I think again, too, as, as we're saying this, I can think of another one that, you know, comes to mind is when, you know, we were talking to, uh, I believe 
I forget the name of the individual, but we were talking about uh, striking. So looking at, okay, well, we had done the crane scale. We looked at isometric forces, but then we wanted to see dynamic. And if anyone's listening, you think uh, back to the, I think I think I actually mentioned this in the original client meeting, like in Rocky, where he, the, the Russian punches the pad and it's like a light-up score. We wanted to figure out what would that shock be like? And not only was it a quick tap and go, or was it, you know, hit and press, when you when you start talking about designing things that have to get uh, hit, dropped, and I, I know I was an expert at this. I think Larry, I gave you a couple heart attacks uh, playing with some of the demo products. Talk about some of the stuff that the students learn about when dealing with high impact or maybe um, some of these other challenges and these high speed projects. I also think about some of the the space satellite stuff you guys done. Maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Sure, we can begin with the uh, strength and then maybe move into the speed. And then the other thing I think is uh, data storage, data transmission. In, in essence, I think the listeners are getting the concept that these are uh, maybe simple challenges with complex solutions. The way that the class works is Larry and I work with this group of students, often they're first year students, second year students, for eight weeks, giving them the background and in information. What is programming? What is um, breadboards? What are electronic elements? How do you model things within a computer? How do you actually build physical devices? And then as uh, Coach Newman said, the client comes in. So the client has a problem and they're now put in front of four students with, with a member of the teaching team listening on in. And uh, I, you know, I think I think the students themselves are as wide eyes as any time during the semester as that client comes in and says, "This is what I need." And there's a banter back and forth of, uh, "Well, here's what we need. Here's where we want to go." But in the case that um, for a lot of the athletic devices, it has to be strong. It has to be reliable. It has to be quick. So now the students have to take those parameters and they have to go back into their prior life. When something is strong, what does that mean? Is it a strong intention? Are shear forces uh, a, a component of it? Where does compression fit into this, this unit? And as the very, very start of that design process, they come up with lots of different possibilities and then begin the analysis. So if we, if we take strength of a device, so often these are used in rather brutal environments. Um, the cold of the lacrosse field in, in you know, February, March, uh, the dynamics of being in the weight room where not only the device could be dropped, but another uh, weight could be dropped on top of it. So being aware of not just the first level demands on them, but the second level demands on their products is really, really important for the design of the device, the selection of materials, uh, the way that that device is actually gonna deflect a, a sudden load or a sudden weight on it. So, so that's one. The second comes to reliability as all of these devices, for the most part, um, are making use of electronic sensors. And you can get a sensor for anything. And the trick for the student is get a sensor that is affordable, reliable, and within their area of expertise, that it can be supported with software, it can be coded, and obviously it can um, achieve the desired function. 
So when you first may have that sensor, you literally could just hold two wires to get that signal to get started. And the students quickly realize that even if you take that signal and secure it with a friction connection, you know, a couple of pops, boom, that's gone and done. So Larry walks them through, no, 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 no. This is how you do it for real by taking these wires, a solder connection, and then ensuring the uh, integrity of that device. Larry, if you want to talk a little bit about the sort of uh, reliability of coding and the transmission of information and then really the use of that information, maybe from a user perspective to, to round out this sense of the design and how it interacts with really the classes that we start the semester with. Yeah, uh, that, that's, a really, that's a really good point about, you know, you, you can start out with a device that maybe is robust on a mechanical side after, after working hard to get to that point, <laughs> but may not at that point be robust um, from the perspective of the coding and then, and then taking that further down the line, sort of what's robust in terms of using that information correctly. So on the coding side, um, the students learn very quickly that uh, you can write a piece of code that appears to be working, but when you push on it a little bit and maybe subject the, subject the object to different things that you hadn't anticipated, maybe the force gets above a certain value and all of a sudden the code stops working because it wasn't prepared to handle a value out of a certain range. And so the same sort of testing you might need to put the device through for from a mechanical perspective, you have to also put it through um, a lot of testing from the coding perspective and make sure that it is really going to work you know, not only if you push that button when you think you're supposed to push that button, but if you push that button when you're not supposed to push that button. Um, and, and they they learn this as well. And, and we try to get them to, to do to do the testing and, and, and learn about the coding to make it as robust as possible. And then, of course, they're sometimes transmitting this information um, using a radio frequency. So they need to make sure that the information that they're sending is the same as what they're actually receiving or, or vice versa. Um, and then that information, you know, they may be getting a string of numbers, which is what they were sending, and then getting that same string of numbers on the receiving side. But is that string of numbers really representing the, the signal that, that, the, that the client wants to capture and then, and then what are they doing with those numbers to sort of present it to a screen that, that, that allows the athlete to really uh, use it to improve their performance. So you can get a string of numbers and throw it on a screen, but it may not be very useful at all unless you, you present it and, and, and um, analyze it in the correct way. So these are all aspects that, that have to be done. Um, in order for or for the project to be successful. Um, and I, I just wanted to add one other thing, which is that the students learn a huge amount by going through this process. And sometimes um, the project is successful from a pedagogical perspective, but they realize that some of these challenges are so hard that that in the time they have, they may not, you know, come up with the final version that can you know, withstand what, what Thomas wants it to withstand. Um, nevertheless, that's still very successful, right? They've still learned a lot. Um, and then, of course, the next time they have to do a project like this, they, they know exactly what they need to do. So uh, I, I figured I would just mention that, that, you know, it, it happens that, that we run up against 
um, challenges that, that are pretty hard. And I love the point there that you brought up about sometimes, especially in innovation, is being able to go and fail. Some of the greatest lessons that I think that you know were learned during the times that I was there was seeing someone about, wow, that took way longer than I thought. Wow, that was more complex. Or you know what? That involved a separate system. And just that awakening process, and you hear about this in entrepreneurship all the time, that second time around, that person is exponentially better. If it's just easy and they go through the class and it's, you know, one plus one is two, um, you know, what did they really learn? And the thought process, read, write, regurgitate is pretty popular amongst the uh, high school education market. But when one of the things when you come to Yale is you really got to stretch that brain. We talk about all the time growing pains, not growing funds. And I'm sure there's countless hours at the CEID of, you know, wow, this is way harder. Oh my God, I'm going to stay up all night and get it done. But you know, what was incredible is our students did that. And they wouldn't take no for an answer. And again, just it's a, it's a credit to the culture that's being built um, in the classroom and then in, in the practical setting. I think you brought up an interesting point on the development of the students in that even within for all these projects, you don't get to the end point right away. So there's an iterative process. So there's first the ideas, and then you're going to try out a couple ideas, and you'll create a first prototype, a second prototype, a third prototype. And in the end, you've created a series of artifacts that take you from that initial idea to that final uh, product. For us, it's been really, really helpful, those artifacts, because with some of the most successful uh, end results, they actually go into, I'll say, quote, production. They go into the gym. They go into uh, the School of Divinity Child Care Center. They go into the medical school library, and they're being used. But what we have behind is the artifacts. So we have small little micro versions of all these great success stories, including the reaction box. So the, the uh, light timer is six foot by six foot. So it's rather massive. It's in the um, Department of Athletics main weight room, the athlete's weight room there. But within the CID is a little 18 inch by 18 inch, uh, probably about the third prototype, because the first prototype had one button, the second prototype had two. And by the time we got to number three, we had uh, six, seven buttons that were used. So we use that within the CID to tell the story, to tell the story today of this uh, innovation challenge, this prototyping development, this iteration of designs. And it, it's actually quite, quite fun. We get a lot of visitors coming in, sometimes potential students uh, come by or visiting campus. So, hey, try out the light board. And so you calm? Yeah, I'm calm. You good to go? Yeah. And they start whacking that thing. And of course, we're at Yale. So everything is scored, right? It's scored automatically. And they get done and you look at their score. And then you sort of like pause for a minute and said, well, that's pretty good. But uh you know, the student that was here this morning, they were a little bit quicker. And then that visiting student just turns ashen. And you have to tell them, just, just playing a little bit here with you uh, type of thing. We have nothing to do with admissions. This isn't a mind mapping type of thing. However, it does give some insight that, you know, once you're at college, you know, boys and girls, you're in the big leagues. You know, we're competing against everything. Um, but we, we do it in the CID in a very, very fun way. Yeah, and I think you, you, you mentioned that there's a little bit of competitiveness in the individuals that you're looking at, not in a negative way, but just in a, a wanting to be great. And then when you put those, you know, individuals and in, in teams, and I think you, you do an incredible job of teaching really smart people how to work together as a team. And that, that especially as it, you know, applies to the real world and the profession when they get out of how do you function as a group? 
how do you function in a team dynamic? And from day one, week one to, you know, that final product, there's a growth of the team as well and, and learning how to do that. Um, and they may not be, some of the best people may not be the best engineers or mechanical or software, but they're really good cohesive bonders. And that's important. And, and that process of iteration, could you kind of walk through that? Because I think some of the, there's different philosophies on design and development and, you know, wait till we get it right. And then we launch it when it's perfect. And then there's, you know, we're going to just put anything out and iterate it every minute. And then, as you mentioned, you kind of alluded to two or three kind of stages. Could you walk through those kind of stages for individuals that may not know that? Sure. I'll go ahead and, and uh, begin by maybe painting the picture and then I'll defer to Larry to see if you want to take one of the projects we haven't spoken about yet and walk us through this uh, iterative cycle. So this is good. Coach Newman's challenging uh, both of us, you know, to put, put it out there for everyone. So the uh, design process that we use is very, very uh, much guided by two principles. One is that it is open-ended and it is student undeveloped. So uh, there is not a predetermined solution but the solution remains for the students to find. The second principle is that the end of the term is the end of the term and it's non-negotiable. So no matter what, we've got to get the product out the door, we gotta get it finished and it's open-ended at the start. So the process that we go through is the clients come in originally to present their ideas. And then for the next six weeks, the client has one half hour with the students. And so it really is a period of getting ready for that half hour presentation to our client. So we need to work really, really hard over this period of time so that we have incremental developments of this idea as it's advancing into the final design. So the process is one of the way to get a good idea is to have lots of ideas to start with. So starting off is the creation of lots of possible solutions for the device itself. And that would be like the presentation on the first week. The second week would be one where it'd be narrowing down. The two leading candidates would then advance through that design process. And then probably by the third week, you're really focused on this is the direction of the device itself. Now, when I say we're focused on that, it's not just that design, but we're into the components that are actually gonna be used, getting back to the reliability. So now that we've got that one design that we're you know, pretty well focused on, the iteration now centers on that uh, final design. What if we do it this way? Well, when we do it this way, how do we make an improvement to this variable? And once we take care of that variable, how is it packaged so that it is functioning and, and giving the result that we really, really want? So this developmental design process is, is really, really the key to go from these open-ended problems, many different solutions, refined solutions, and then in essence, detailed design on what will be that final solution. So that was easy for me to describe. Now Larry gets the challenge of maybe giving an example or two um, that could walk someone through that process. Um. I'm not sure if you were giving me the uh, clue by holding up the device or because I was thinking De dealer's choice on what, what you want to talk about. But if you're stuck, I was giving you one. <laughs> um, well, on that one, I think actually it will be better to go back to you because well, we'll have Coach Newman talk about that one because yeah, so. I think because you know more than me at this point. But 
Um, I was actually going to jump in on a non non athletic one um, because it it just it's a good example, um, and it's also an interesting example. So the one I'm thinking of is is a called a contactless microscope, which we sometimes now call a hover scope. Uh, it's a device. Um, the challenge was presented to us from the Peabody Museum here at Yale, uh, which uh, is under renovation right now, and they have a particular room called the Discovery Room where they have a lot of hands-on activities for um, children coming from the various schools that, that come through the museum. Um, the fact that they're under renovation means that there's an opportunity for doing something new in that room on the in the renovated version. Um, combined with of course what was going on in the world with the pandemic the idea uh, came about that if you could do something in a contactless way it would be a much you know cleaner and more hygienic way of, of having people interact with an activity um, but they also told us that when they have sort of standard microscopes in their in, in their normal discovery environment uh, the contact is also a mechanism for sort of um, ultimately having uh, the, the devices kind of um, under need of repair more frequently because things happen when you're touching them and moving them all the time. Uh, so the, the challenge was can we do something without having to touch it so that it's sort of uh, you know better in terms of not not transferring um, germs and things but also can we make it so it also won't get destroyed. Um, so in any case, uh, the the all these ideas of sort of um, the design process, starting out with sort of a, a, a an idea and then coming up with many solutions, narrowing it down, but then going through an iterative process where to actually build the device, you need to sort of make many versions where you're sort of exploring the different designs and testing the different sensors. Um, this was a great example. And one of the really interesting things that, that we had happened here was that one of the students for this particular project was remote. Um, she, was, she was working in Hawaii. Um, but we were able to have her also test out many of the different ideas that, we, that the students who were on site were testing by mailing to her a kit of parts um, and then having her sort of build the same structure, you know, uh, sort of roughly the same structure as what the students were building here. And the interesting thing about that was that because she didn't have all of the parts that they had in terms of pieces of wood and the ability to use a laser cutter or a 3D printer, she had to improvise. You know, she had to cut things out of cardboard and she had to test things under a slightly different geometry. And that turned out to be really valuable because some of the insights she gained by doing things in this very sort of improvisational way, um, you know, led to new ideas on, on the end over here with the students working together, uh, you know, in, in our CEID space where they did have some access to, to the other tools. Um, so there was this sort of iterative process that not only was going on in one, in one space, but it was going back and forth, you know, literally across uh, you know, across the country and beyond, you know, to Hawaii, uh, across the ocean, um, where where they were making different versions and and then continually improving things. And one particular thing that that came out about uh, came out of that was improving the sensors we were using. So so the student in Hawaii got a very 
a nice result using a particular kind of sensor, but then understood better what some of the pitfalls of that were. And then the students here, we tried a different sensor, uh, and eventually they, you know, they were able to come up with something that was a little bit more reliable. Um, the ability to iterate um, and 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 fail with certain versions and then improve those versions and ultimately succeed is, you know, as Vince sort of gave that as, a, as part of the, the design process is just incredibly um, critical to, to the overall success. Yeah, and we talk, we talk all the time about having that growth mindset as a leader that I, I remember students would say, oh, I failed, I messed up, I screwed up. Well, no, you didn't. Did you try? Did you, did you, you know, did you try 10 times, exhaust all those options, and then there's the 11th one, and then making sure that people understood that it was the effort that we were looking for. It wasn't in week two, do you have to have the final outcome? And oh, you're stupid. You should have thought of that. You should have thought of that. And especially growing up where, you know, particularly Yale students had done pretty well in school, you know, the idea of failing uh, may be one of their greatest aversions. And, and so for them, if they don't get an A, then it's a, it's a complete waste of time. I thought you do, there was an incredible job of eliminating that. And so that's what kind of drove the energy and design. And I particularly loved that second part, the second interview uh, day when I would come in and they would say, okay, here's the problem. Yep. Get it. There's something messed up. Here's our solutions. And that process of really narrowing down, what can we do financially, time-wise or whatever? I think that was really so critical because that's kind of the art and the science, right? Like everybody wants a, you know, a Rolls Royce, but if you only can afford a, a Toyota, a Honda Civic, uh, Toyota Corolla, then you need to, you know, need to make the product according to scope. And actually, I thought about that quite a bit as we were going through our most recent uh, web app update of saying, what is our user experience like at the iPad? What's our, what's our user experience when they go back? And one of your questions that you would always ask the students that I would ask myself all the time is, what problem is this solving? Is this kind of like, man, that's nice. Or did it just save me 15 minutes? Or you know what? I'd pay $10 to not have that problem. And putting that into every part of the feature of the report, of the speed, of the timing, all those little intricacies. And I think when I walked away from that class, I probably had more appreciation for design uh, than I'd ever had because to design something really good is hard. To design something that makes a change or creates an industry is tough. And I, and I know I would come into you guys with all these wild problems, this and that. And, you know, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about the, uh, the squat box. Every single strength coach in the world argues, did I get deep enough on the squat, you know, or on the push-up? And then there's been sponges used, there's been fists, there's been shoes in all different ways, try to measure depth. Could you, so could you just jump in a little bit here and tell everyone about the, uh, the squat box? So we have the design class. We got four wide-eyed students. Coach Newman comes in and says, we need a way to verify that an athlete has reached the proper depth doing a squat with weights on their back. And the students then visit the weight room and see the exercise demonstrated. The wheels start spinning. And from that, quote, the squat box is born. So over the next six weeks, the students take that uh, concept and work with it and have found a uh, transducer that sends a signal and it can bounce off of basically any material. You capture that reflected signal and then you go ahead and process it. 
you process it with light, you process it with sound. So as the athlete is doing the squat, they get the feedback, the coach monitoring them can get the feedback. But now we come into all those other things that coach was saying, it has to be reliable, it has to be strong, it has to be easy to use, it has to be intuitive. And it has to work every time. Uh, end up six weeks later, Coach Newman comes in for the final, and we've got a nice box about six inches uh, long, uh, three and a half inches wide, one inch deep, and boom, you do a squat, it pegs it. Beep, 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 beep. It can do it for a year without recharging that battery. So it's just a great, great device that is very accurate, it's very reliable, and it's very simple. Before that presentation, it went into the gym, so the athletes used it. And the great thing about uh, innovation is it really spurs other innovation. So if you walk into a gym and you've got a device to do something, chances are within about five minutes, someone's going to have another idea and another idea. So by the end of that first trial, people are using it for push-ups, they're using it for sit-ups. So it, it, it's not just the squat box anymore, but it's developing to squat box plus because of the other uses that it, it can have. What we've been able to do at the CEID is, is to take that original device and continue this iterative process. So a group comes in and we work with them and they now have a printed circuit board version instead of a hardwired version. Another group comes in and reconfigures the box and then the light bulb goes off for us that I think we might have something here. So let's make a bunch of them. So we in-house have manufactured 50 of these devices and sent them out to strength coaches. We sent them out to physical therapists. We sent them out to police academies to have them evaluated. Is there something there there with this device that was first called the squat box, but we found that it's used for any number of different reps. So it's been rechristened as the rep box. And we've done this under the umbrella of educating students. So the purpose of the rep box program is that any student can come into this program now and learn elements of manufacturing engineering. They can learn elements of entrepreneurship. They can learn elements of bringing a product to market and doing it with the appropriate regulation, the appropriate uh, adherence to export control, the appropriate information regarding patents and intellectual property. So we've created from this squat box that transitioned to the rep box, it is now the bulldog rep box trademark. And that's the first project to product component of a new way of learning, design, manufacturing, engineering, entrepreneurship, and marketing and sales all under the Yale umbrella. So any student can come in, they can sample from these different areas, and this project is advancing to a commercial product under the auspices of Yale University. So it's been really, really exciting to take this class project and to develop it into a commercial product, but even more so into a tool that can teach these components. Larry had mentioned the hoverboard, the contactless microscope, that's now in this continuum. And we have a couple other projects that are working their way into commercial products 
thanks to the great innovations at uh, the Yale Department of Athletics, working with the School of Engineering and the Center for Engineering Innovation and Design. And Coach Newman, that is it. Bulldog Rep Box, we've got them. Well, I think at some point we'll have to get some of those up on Instagram because I know that there are coaches all over the world that have that similar uh, problem and challenge, but uh, I thought that product absolutely nailed it. And as you mentioned, you bring anything into the weight room, um, it gets legs, it gets used in different ways and it starts to change your mind. And I think, again, I come back to what I originally said is the great thing about uh, your center is that you walk in there and you legitimately have a shot to change the world. And I think it's important for people, especially with everything going on in the world today, and we're looking for some positive kind of things to look for. Uh, the center that you've run, uh, not only has it you know, met the goals and expectations you probably set out a few years ago when you guys open, um, but also to the future looks bright. And it's just if you're a young person or if you get the opportunity to attend Yale or just to be involved with it, um, it's really astounding that if there's a problem to be had, um, that there's a group of team and a group of resources available uh, to try to make positive change. I think that's what we look for in any kind of innovation design is to question the way things are done. Is there a better way of doing it? And especially when you start thinking about, you mentioned some of the athletic things, so obviously athlete safety, but there's been countless projects um, that I know that you've done that we don't have time to get into um, that were in medical so this wasn't just a concept that was applied to, to winning sports games. You, you, this has actually gone and, you know, you have surgeons come in, you have heart, uh, heart surgeons, you have all sorts of economic stuff. And, and it's really incredible that um, you're really challenging the next generation to kind of have that open mind um, to, to try to make a positive change. And I think that's just so important for people to hear. I know currently at uh, my position now within Hawken, we, we currently, you know, use a lot of those concepts that, you know, you taught me uh, and then you taught our staff throughout the years. And obviously uh, people may not know, but the, the Watson names, our CEO, Ben, uh, his family's pretty connected to Yale as well. So it's pretty fortuitous that again, there's this linkage and connection. And obviously we look forward to continue to, uh, you know, go work alongside you. And I, I, you better believe I got tons of problems ready to bring you guys in the fall. I still wish that you had this class, you know, in the spring as well. But for anyone who hasn't had a chance to make it out to New Haven, I know when things start to open up, um, it's definitely worth uh, a walk by. You can look in the windows, see all the little 3D printed bulldogs and whatever, but absolutely amazing center, absolutely amazing people. Uh, and I am so excited just to see as things continue to grow and develop uh, what comes out of there. But again, it's just one of those hidden gems of New Haven that uh, everyone's really got to get a chance to see. So guys, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time out to, to speak with myself and the rest of our audience. And uh, we'll have to do another one of these uh, later on in the winter when uh, we finish this next fall class. So again, thank you guys so much. Stay well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure working with you through the years. Oh, thank you.